So today we're going to begin our Christianity 101 series. If you don't know what a 101 stands for, 101 when you go to college is your very basic educational classes that you take and then you build on those educational classes. You go to 102 and 202 and all those kind of stuff. Well, Christianity 101 is going to be the very basics of the faith. And it's always good to review those so they're fresh in our mind when people ask us questions about things. And part of the format about this series is that at the end of each message, we're going to be having a question and answer time. So if you have any questions about the content or this subject in particular, go ahead, write them down on your bulletin, and uh, we'll discuss them at the end of the message um, about this particular topic. Or if this question uh, sparks something else in your mind, you can ask that question um, after we're done discussing the lesson for today. If you are shy and you don't want to bring up a question during the service, you can always uh, send me an email at pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. Uh, my email address is also on the back of the bulletin. Uh, you can send it there, or if you miss a Sunday, you can listen to it on our church podcast, which is on the website, and the uh, direct web address for it is on the back of the bulletin also. So the video we watched just a moment ago introduces us to a question that is very important in today's world. And it's a question those outside the faith are asking about Christianity. Where is the source of your truth? And when we say the Bible, they ask, well, how do we know the Bible is accurate? How do we know the Bible is a reliable source for us? And we're going to begin our, our series by discussing the source of our faith. And when I say source, I'm talking about the objective truth that we have in deciding what is true and what is not about the way we understand God and his plan for us. And when I say objective truth, I mean objective truth, because we're going to be talking a little bit about this later. Objective proof is something that is provable, something that is factual, something that is repeatable. If it's something is an objective truth, like right now, if we take some water and we apply heat to it, we have to get that water up to 212 degrees Fahrenheit in order for it to boil. We can repeat it over and over and over again, and that result is always going to be the same. That is objective truth. Subjective truth, on the other hand, is a, simply a feeling or an intuition that is very personal to us or to the personal person experiencing it, but it does, isn't necessarily provable in other ways. So if we are talking about something that we are hanging our internal destiny on, obviously we want objective truth, don't we? We want something that is provable so that we can be sure of what we believe. All For all true Christians, the objective truth of faith and conduct is the Bible. Everything that Christians know about sin, salvation, faith, God, Jesus, or anything spiritual should come from the Bible. And even secular historians will tell you that the, without the Bible, Western culture, society, and history would be vastly different than it is today. When I'm talking about Western history, I'm talking about European and American history. In fact, if it wasn't for the Bible and the faith it contains... It can easily be said that you and I would not be existing in a country called America today. The entire Western civilization and culture derives itself from the truth found in Scripture. And the Bible has survived numerous attempts to destroy it, discredit it, or marginalize it. 
The Bible is the truth about the Creator God. It's the truth about the condition of humanity. It's the truth about the so, uh, origin and source of evil and the way of salvation. This way of salvation and this truth that has brightened the lives and spirits of billions of people throughout history. It's the first of the 16 fundamental truths that we as an Assembly of God Fellowship recognize. And within that uh, 16 foundational truths, it's, we say it like this, that the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, are verbally inspired of God and are the revelation of God to man, the infallible, authoritative rule of faith and conduct. Very specific and very um, non-negotiable statement that begins our 16 fundamental truths. So today we're going to be exploring this truth and answering a lot of questions you may have about the Bible and we're afraid to ask. So why do we hold this book in such, in such esteem? Why do we follow the words of a book that was finished over 2,000 years ago, or almost 2,000 years ago? And why is a book that is 2,000 years old relevant to our lives today? And why does it matter if you believe the Bible or not? Why do you have to know how to defend its truth? Well, because the Bible commands those who follow its words to be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. We have to be willing, or willing and able to defend exactly how this Bible came into being. And this morning we're going to look at some of those basic facts and the history behind how we arrived with this book that we treasure so dearly. We're also going to see what the, what the Bible has to say about itself and why it is so important for us to study it and even more importantly, allow it to study us and our spiritual lives today. So as we get into this, let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you. I ask, Father, that you just make your word real to us today, that you'll give us a passion for your word, that you'll give us that same spirit that was within the author of Psalm 119, that we thirst and hunger after your word, and that we will be willing to defend it to a world that is increasingly refusing to believe the truth that is found within it. Lord God, we thank you this morning. We just ask that you be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question I want to answer for us today is twofold. One, can we trust the Bible as being the authentic and truthful revelation of God and his plan for humanity? And number two, how does it affect our lives today? So let's begin by looking at some very basic Bible facts before we get into more specific things. The first thing I want to bring up is that this Bible is not a single book. It is a library. It contains 66 different books within it in sections called the Old and the New Testament. And this is an extremely important distinction for us to understand when it comes to reading it and interpreting it and understanding the time and the culture that it was written to. This is why people outside the faith that attempt to critique the Bible always get it wrong. When you talk about your Richard Dawkins or um, different people like that, or even Stephen Hawkins who criticized the Bible, they were looking at it from without, from without 
and trying to look into it and trying to take it as a single volume and not 66 different books written to specific times to specific peoples addressing specific concerns and they try to apply it to the whole thing and, and they really mess it up. So the Bible is really 66 books divided to the Old and the New Testament. The word testament means covenant or contract. And within the Old Testament, you have 39 different books. Within the New Testament, there are 27 different books. So th this word testament, meaning covenant or contract, means that the old contract or the old covenant applies to those old people in the Old Testament. And that's very important. Because if we try to take the Old Testament and apply it to the people in the New Testament, it would be like digging up a law book around here that may have come from the 17th century and toss a person in jail for spitting on the sidewalk on a Sunday morning. It just it doesn't apply anymore for our lives today, much of it. And Christians believe that the Bible was written by or was written by people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The video we watched a moment ago said that there was about 40 different human authors who wrote the Bible. They were shepherds, they were farmers, they were tent makers. They were physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and kings. And despite all these differences in occupation, all the difference in the educational levels that they had, and even though it was over a span of years and, and even different continents it was written on, the Bible is still an extremely cohesive and unified book. Continuing in some basic Bible facts. Anybody know which author contributed the most books to the New Old Testament? Who wrote the most? No? Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. They're referred to as a Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, talk meaning the Hebrew word for books. So Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Apostle Paul, do you know who, well, I just gave it away, do you, do you know who the uh, single author who contributed the most books to the New Testament? Paul, there, there you go. Makes my church sound really smart then. Um, <laughs> he wrote about 13 or 14 of the books of the New Testament. We say roughly 13 or 14 because we're not sure quite, we're not positive who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, it's either a, uh, probably the Apostle Paul or Apollos who wrote that one, but he didn't identify himself immediately in the book in the front or the back like he usually does, so there's a little question mark there, but it doesn't mean that Hebrews isn't authoritative. The Bible was written over a period of some 1,500 years, starting from about 1450 B.C., which is the time of Moses, to about 100 A.D., ending with the death of the Apostle John. So you know what the oldest book of the Bible is? The first one written? No. Job. Job, yep. Bible school part sparked back up in there for a moment. Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. Some people put that all the way back to the 6th century B.C., um, other people say that it was actually it was orally um, shared amongst the people and then written down by Moses around 1450 B.C. But that is actually the oldest book of the Bible. So uh, what's the newest book of the Bible or the last written book? This one should be easy. Revelation. 
Book of Revelation, the New Testament, written about 95 A.D. The Bible was written in three languages. Which ones? Do you remember? Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Yep, Aramaic, the language of the Chaldeans from Iran or the Persians. As was uh, Daniel was probably written in mostly Aramaic. A few other trivia facts that will help you look cool to your Christian friends. What's the longest book in the Bible? Psalms. What's the shortest book in the Bible? Second John. Yep. Longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119. Some Bible quiz people here. Shortest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 117. Well, that's coming up. <laughs> What's the longest verse in the Bible? Don't worry, I won't read it. Esther 8, 9. And the shortest verse in the Bible? James. Yep, John, Jesus wept, John 11.35. Now, how many, this is a really interesting uh, thing I found. As of last year, 2018, how many languages have the Bible been translated into? 2018. Happened to just match the year. With countless more partial translations and audio translations, because many of the languages on earth don't have a written component to them, they're just they're tribal languages and nobody's actually put an alphabet together for them. And that's an enormous amount of translations when you consider like the most, second most popular author in the English language is Shakespeare. He's only been translated into 50 languages. Which, do you know that the Bible is still the best-selling book in the world, even in our secular culture right now? Over 100 million copies are printed each year. 100 million copies. That's incredible. Those are some fast facts, but how would we decide which ancient writings made it into this book? Do you know how the church figured it out? Because this is an actual topic that's still being discussed right now. There is a, I don't know if it was a trilogy, two or three movies that were made of it, and a book series by Dan Brown called The Da Vinci Code that openly attacked how the church... Um, selected the scriptures and he accused the church of corruption and, and um, um, of forcing women down and just picking and choosing ver uh, what they would uh, have to keep the church in power and just a, just a whole bunch of lies that he said about the church. So let me explain to you the very laborious process that the church went through to uh, decide which of the of the uh, writings that it had in its possession were actually scripture. So the Bible went through several councils and processes by which it was divinely recognized as God's word and then canonized. And what does canonized mean? The word canon is derived from the Greek word kanon, meaning a measuring rod. In other words, it was a, a measurement that was placed to the scriptures or a standard that was placed to the scriptures that had to be followed in order for it to be recognized as being divinely inspired. So to recognize which writings were inspired, they used the following primary four criteria. There were many criteria, but these were the, the primary four. Number one was authorship. Who wrote this book? Was this just some guy down at the local store who wrote the book? Or is this a recognized spiritual leader who wrote this book? That was the first, um, the first 
canon or first standard they applied. The second one was acceptance. Remember that the church at the time that they actually put all these books together was widely scattered. It was, they were being persecuted. They were being hunted down to be killed by the Roman Empire. So whichever scriptures were being used by the most churches, they would use that and say, well, as long as all these churches are recognizing that this has that divine touch to it, we're going to recognize that as scriptures. And if the writing in question or the book in question or the scroll in question passed these first two tests, then they went to the third, which is coherency and agreement. In other words, did the book contain any ideas or doctrine that conflicted with other scripture? The and this is the standard, by the way, if you grew up Catholic, you know that you have seven additional books in your Bible. They're called the Apocrypha. But when you read the Apocrypha, and I've read some, some of the Apocrypha, you immediately see different things in those scriptures that contradict the rest of the Bible. So when they went and, and put the, this test to those seven books of the Apocrypha, they immediately pushed them to the side and said, no, those can't be divinely inspired because God's not going to say something here and contradict it throughout the rest of Scripture. So that's what disqualified some of those books from being recognized as Scriptures. And number four was inspiration. They were recognized as having the divine presence the divine character, and the divine plan revealed in its writings. And that's really the only subjective standard versus those objective standards that the church used before this. Now, the Old Testament is believed to have been canonized by the Jewish people about 90 A.D. at a place called Jemea in, in, in Israel. It's called the Council of Jemea, and the Greek or not the Greek, excuse me, the Jewish or Hebrew Pharisees, Sadducees, their, their council at that time recognized the Old Testament books as being divinely inspired and written of God. The entire New Testament as we know it today was canonized at several church councils, the most important being the Third Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. At that meeting, they also agreed which of the Old Testament books were canon. The Bible was first translated from its original source languages into the modern um, language of that day, which was Latin. That was the, the language of the Roman Empire. And it was translated into Latin about 382 A.D. by a man named Jerome. He was a Catholic theologian. And this is called the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. The first English translation was made in 382 A.D. by John Wycliffe and the church heavily persecuted for translating it into the modern language. And then in 1454, a very seminal moment happened in human history. This is a very important moment. Most of you probably don't even realize it. But in 1454, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. Guess which is the first book that rolled off the presses? The Bible. Before that, if you wanted to copy any book, whether it was a, you wanted to put out a newspaper, a writing, a book, Shakespeare, whatever, you would have had to write, sit down and pay somebody to write it out by hand for you. So if you ordered a Bible today, you'll get it in 10 years because they're probably a little behind in their ability to copy. So the printing press changed everything and enabled us to quickly record um, the writings of people. 
Those are some basic facts, but let's dig a little deeper about the documents used to translate the Bible into languages that people today can read. So what were the source documents of the Bible? The major source documents of the Bible are books called codexes. Codex means ancient scroll, book, or manuscript. The codexes were primarily or the primary documents used in translating the Bible from the Greek, the Hebrew, or the Aramaic into English. There are four codexes still in existence today. The two primary and two secondary. The oldest ones that are used and referred to most often when um, translating the Bible into modern English are known as the um, Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. We'll get into that in just a little bit. When we look at ancient documents and we're trying to decide which ones are the most true, you want the oldest one possible. And you say, well, why would you want the oldest one possible? Well, think about this. Let's say we go up to Quick Trip to get lunch or into a restaurant or whatever to get lunch after church today and somebody robs the, robs the place where we're at. When the detectives come and interview us about the robbery, they're not going to say, why don't you guys go home and relax and come back next week and then we'll get your statements. They're going to want the statement from the people as soon as possible from the event that happened. Because that's when your memory is going to be the most sure of what happened, right? I mean, a week from now, people are going to be talking about the robbery. It's going to mess with your memory. I just took a psychology course again. And they were talking about all the research that has gone into memory. And they were talking about how easy it is to manipulate people's memories in, in ways that, that you don't even realize. For example, if the guy who robbed the quick trip had a blue shirt on, and you know it was blue, but all the other ten witnesses that were there said it was green, you will eventually, your memory will change and put that person in a green shirt. So it is very, very critical when we're talking about these ancient witnesses and, um, and looking back at what was written, that we get the oldest, most reliable manuscript as close to the time that these events actually took place as possible. And theologians view the codexes and other biblical sources the same way. The closer to the actual events, the better to get to the truth of what happened. We don't have the original documents anymore. They were destroyed by an emperor named Diocletian. He came to power in 303 AD and destroyed much of the written documents that the church had at that time. He was trying to wipe Christianity off of the face of the earth, and he came very close to doing so. But a lot of the churches were still able to hold on to copies of those, um, of those letters, um, even though he tried to... Um, kill people who had them. After Diocletian died, a man named Constantine became emperor of Rome and eventually converted to a belief in Christ. And as soon as that happened, the churches all got together with all those separated documents that they had, and they wrote it down in the Otis of the Codexes. And the Otis Codex is known as the Codex Vat Vaticanus, and it's dated at about 325 A.D., that was when one of the tr first church councils um, happened. And it was, it's kept right now. It's still in existence. It's kept at the Vatican in Rome. The Texas Recepticus, which is a retranslation of Jerome's Latin version of the Bible, is the source document 
from which the King James Version of the Bible is taken from. That's what they used to translate the King James Version in 1611. There's also the Codex Sinaiticus. The Codex Sinaiticus has a very interesting story behind it. This is dated at 330 AD when it was written, five years after the other Codex. This was discovered by a theologian named Constantine von Tischendorf in 1844 at a monastery in Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. The Catholic monks there had kept these codex, codexes and copies safe from the Roman Empire for over 1,500 years. They guarded these. Unfortunately, after the centuries went by and Rome fell and ceased to become a threat to them, the monks, you know, generations after generations of these monks went through, and they forgot eventually what they were really guarding. All they knew is they had a whole bunch of pots filled with scrolls sitting in a back room. They had no idea what these scrolls even meant. Nobody could even read the languages anymore. So they decided to use it as kindling. They had it back there. They had hundreds of these scrolls back there. And whenever the fires would go out and they couldn't get it lit, they would grab one of these scrolls, toss it in the fireplace, and be able to light their fires again. Constantine Tischendorf went and visited this uh, monastery, and being a theologian, he could read all those ancient languages. He started looking at them and said, oh my gosh, this is scripture. And so he got the monks to give him um, and buy some of these, a lot of these uh, scrolls from them. And with that, he was able to put together the Codex Sinaiticus. And they contain the oldest and best translation of the New Testament in existence. In fact, most modern translations of the Bible are translated using this codex as a primary source, including the New International Version, which is the one that's in your pews right now. Those are the two primary sources. There are also two secondary codexes. We won't go really into those. The Codex Alexandrius, discovered in Alexandria, Egypt, and the Codex Emphremi, found in Israel, and it was written about 450 A.D. They carbon date and do all that kind of stuff and figure it out when it was written. Those are the two codexes that are used to compare with the older ones to ensure that what is written is true. Now you may ask, well, what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? What are, what's, what's with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were copies of the Old Testament that were kept by an offshoot of Judaism called the Essenes. They were found by a shepherd boy in 1946 and contained the second oldest fragmented copies of the Old Testament, which confirmed the content of the two primary codexes that we use. Besides the codexes, the whole books of the Bible, there are over 10,000 source documents or fragments or ancient copies of books of the Bible dated prior to 500 AD in existence today. And when you compare that with other ancient documents, such as the writings of Socrates or Aristotle, Plato, Julius Caesar, you're talking about having less than a dozen copies of their writings respectfully. And a lot of those writings that we do have are contradictory. You can't even tell what they were saying a lot of the time because they contradict each other. So what does all this boring Bible school history theology stuff have to do with biblical manuscripts? And what does it mean for us today? What it means is that the book you have access to on the internet or your phone or the, in a pew in front of you is accurate to what the original authors wrote. You say, well, how accurate are all these across from each other? They're written at different times, different places. How accurate can they be with each other? 
depending on which scholar you follow, 95 to 98.7% accurate with one another. We're talking about every I dotted, T crossed in their language, punctuation, everything is 98.7% accurate. And the differences you see are mostly punctuation, slightly different spellings of the same word, or copy errors from one manuscript that is corrected in others. And no doctrine of our faith is influenced by any of those discrepancies. All that to show you that the book we base our faith on is the revealed Word of God. We already talked about other ancient writings and how they contradict each other, how they say totally different things. It shows the miraculous ability of God to protect His Word through 3,000 years of humanity trying to destroy it. I showed you this external evidence first. So you, can't, so you would see that it's not just the Bible saying it's God's Word. We see hard, objective evidence that proves that God has preserved His Word. The Quran can't say that. The writings of Buddha can't say that. None of those other religions can say that their copies of their um, scriptures have survived like that through the centuries. No one can say that. There's no other explanation of how the Bible made it through that and still maintain upwards of 98% integrity and accuracy. So that's the external proof of the Bible's veracity. What does the Bible say about itself? Well, the Apostle Paul spells this out for us in 2 Timothy 3, 15, when he said that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That phrase, God breathed, is a literal translation of the Greek, theonoustos, which theos being God, noustos meaning a breath. God breathed into the authors of the Bible and allowed them to write down divine truth. It doesn't mean that God used the ancient people as court stenographers. It wasn't like they were sitting there with a pen and a scroll and saying, and just writing down as God spoke. God used the um, different people that he spoke through and, and used them according to their education level, according to their personalities. It's called the, the verb, verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And it says that God worked with and through the human writers of the Bible, allowing them to use their own words, own style, own personalities to convey the scriptural truth as God led them. Last week we talked a little bit about God breathing on things and producing life. How much more so did he breathe into the people that wrote the Bible and produce the life that we have today through it? Another scripture that supports this idea is found in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It says that no, excuse me, that prophecy, prophecy means that God speaks through humans, no, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this scripture simply confirms the basis of how we believe the scriptures came to be. And you see the truth of divine inspiration through the fact that the Bible contains no contradictions. That's one of the most popular tools that the world wants to use. Well, the Bible's full of contradictions, and I always say, show me one. You're just hearing that because you saw it on Twitter. 
You saw somebody on TV say it's full of contradictions. Show me one. I've never, I've never been able to have somebody do it. They will say that it's full of contradictions, but it's not if you know how to interpret it. I mean, after all, if you look at the Bible trying to find something wrong, you'll probably find it. This is where Hawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens and all these pe kind of people go wrong. If you go in looking for something wrong, you're probably going to find something wrong because you're looking at it from the wrong heart. Remember in the beginning of the message, I said it's 66 books with one central message. So if you go into the Bible looking for something wrong, according to what you believe, you might find it. But when you look at it as a whole, you will see it flowing through the whole salvation history. So what's the mission of the Bible? Why did God go through all this work creating, protecting, and transmitting this truth for us to live by? Well, the Apostle Paul told us, the Bible is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. In essence, it's our guide to make us look like Jesus. It's not just a book to read. It's a book that reads us. It's both a window into the heart, mind, character, and plan of God, as well as a mirror that shows, that reflects back on us and lets us know how we are falling short and how we need God's help to live according to how he wants us to live. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He said that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word has incredible power to change our life. It wasn't just given to us as a historical record. It wasn't just given to us to record prophecy. It's not just a series of laws or, or rules or ceremonies we try to follow to gain the favor of God. The Bible is given to us as a supernatural tool that shows us who we are at the deepest level. It's a microscope that explores the deepest and most hidden parts of our soul so that the nature of God can be infused within us at the most intimate levels. It's not only a microscope to show us where we are, but it's meant to be a scalpel that will cut loose those things that aren't pleasing to God. It starts with showing us who God is, the creator of all things. And then it immediately shows us who you and I are, beings created with the very image of God stamped in us. It then transitions to show us what the concept of sin is and what its effect is on all creation. The rest of the Old Testament shows us the progression of salvation history by focusing on one people group called the Hebrews and how they interacted with God. It shows their successes. It also shows their raw failures that led to God disciplining them in various ways. The New Testament shows the life and teaching of the God-man Jesus as he came and died to appease divine justice so that we did not have to bear the consequence of our rebellion and so we can regain the favor of God. Jesus came and tore down religion and replaced it with the original intent of God creating you and I to live in close, intimate relationship with him so that his very presence and spirit could be once again entwined with ours. The New Testament further spells out the meaning of the church and its mission to carry this good news called the gospel 
throughout the entire earth. Jesus himself told us that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations and in all tongues, 2018, as of right now. And after that, the end will come when he comes and restores and establishes the kingdom of God on earth. That's the power of the Bible. And that's the reasons that we can trust it as our authoritative rule of faith and conduct today. Finally, I close with a very sobering warning about the Bible that is found at the end of the last book of the Bible called Revelation. In Revelation 20, 11, it says that, John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The heavens and earth fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. There are different books opened at this time. The Book of Remembrance, recording everything that has ever been done by everyone who has ever lived. The Book of Life, recording those who have put their faith in Jesus. And the Bible. The Bible is what you will be judged by. Because it is the canon, the measurement that God uses against you and me or puts us up to. Continuing on in Revelation 20, it says, Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of Revelation ends with this warning that refers not only to that book, but I believe to the entirety of Scripture. When John says, I warn anyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. God is jealous of his word. And so whenever someone stands up in a public square and says, you don't have to believe in it, they are quite literally playing with fire. Amen?